Hi, this is Johnny Whitaker, or John O. Whitaker Jr., remembered from Family Affairs, Sigmund and the Sea Monsters. And you are listening to Then Is Now Podcast. Rise and shine, my sinners. When Father Evil starts his day, he gets a little deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee has the richest, smoothest flavor you'll find anywhere. It's sinfully delicious. Once you go deadly, you never go back. Order yours at getdeadly.com. Coffee's so good, it's scary. What kind of a sick school is this? I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. You got spunk. I hate spunk. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Oh, righty. How you doing? Back off, man. I'm a scientist. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Say hello to my little friend. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. What are you people? On dope? Stop whining. I got a crap on your deck that you choke a donkey. Who is your daddy? I'm sorry, but all questions must be submitted in writing. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Can I do that? I'll be back. A dynamite! Show me the money! Don't! Up your nose with you have a A what? I'm sailing! I'm sailing! Groovy. You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it. Pull it down. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Here's looking at you, kid. We got no food, we got no jobs, our pets' heads are falling off! Come to the coast, we get together, have a few laughs. Hear that, Elizabeth? I'm coming to join you, honey! I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. I love it when a plan comes together. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. We're on a mission from God. Hello and welcome to yet another awesome episode of Then Is Now Podcast. I am your host, Rigor. Horror has been with us since the dawn of mankind in various forms over the years. And while horror movies have been with us since the early 1900s, horror books have been around far longer. Still going strong today is the horror novel market, and new authors and books are appearing almost daily in almost all of the online and -and brick-and-mortar bookstores. We have an author with us today whose book, A Disgusting Supermarket of Death, collects hard-boiled short stories about satanic Christmas movies, performance art euthanasia, child sacrifice skin care, and other demented goodness. Folks, I will warn you that as we get into the topics of the short stories in this book, it may not be for the squeamish, faint of heart, or young people, so you've been warned. Otherwise, if you're made of stronger stuff, then sit back and prepare to delve into the mind of a demented and creative author. Class is in session. I have a bad feeling about this. How could I possibly be expected to handle school on a day like this? Food fight! Hey, you in my class? 
I am today. I think you should consider transferring to shop class. Whoa, whoa! Now, now, very few students are severely injured in shop class. Bueller. When you were in school. Bueller. Did you ever cut class? Bueller. Yeah, I guess I did. Sure, most kids cut classes. Good. Sign this. Um, he's sick. I get so lonely when I hear that third attendance oh. bell ring and all my kids are not here. Seven years of college down the drain. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, so. You lack discipline. As long as I'm here, there will be no grades or gold stars or demerits. We're gonna have recess all the time. Woo! Go! Play and have fun now! Okay, folks, now I warned you in the opening intro, but I'm gonna, just going to reiterate here, if you're squeamish or faint of heart, you've been warned that this episode might not be for you. The book we're about to discuss might bring up some topics that would be inappropriate for kids, so listener discretion is highly advised. That being said, today's guest is an author who's an alumni of Cornell, Yale, and the University of Pennsylvania. He has a master's in religion and was a lawyer before becoming an author. He published several horror and sci-fi stories, including podcast projects for Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Some of his inspirations are EC Comics, Mad Magazine, Frank Miller, and Judge Dredd, as well as authors James Elroy, Brett Easton Ellis, Mark Millar, Garth Ennis, Kurt Vonnegut, and Raymond Chandler. He's the co-author of the graphic novel Stay Alive, which was nominated for the prestigious Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards in the category of Best Graphic Novels or Collections, as well as being the author of his latest book, A Disgusting Supermarket of Death, a series of short stories that include such characters as a corrupt prison warden who sells true crime fanatics, a serial killer meet and greet, healthcare workers who cause a massive car pileup so they can murder its victims, and a Hollywood undertaker who sells rich perverts carnal access to recently departed celebrities, just to name a few. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming the demented and talented author, James Harbison. I'm quite happy to be here. Thank you very much. Awesome, awesome. Glad to have you on the show. Took us a little bit to get here, but we're finally doing it. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful for this opportunity to talk about my work. It's, uh, you know, it's what I love, and look at me tongue-tied. It's what I love, <laughs> and, you know, it's, uh, I'd like to think it's my highest and best use. So. Excellent. And And if I can make people think a little bit about things in a way they haven't thought about them before while entertaining them at the same time, then all the better. Oh, yeah. And this book definitely does that. I mean, it's, it's, it's a deeply dark book. Did you find it difficult to dive into those dark places in your mind when you were creating them? No. My mind's often in dark places. And I, I guess that maybe it's because I see the world as a dark place and being able to, you know, consolidate the darkness in Fiction is a way of dealing with that. I have a friend who is a political scientist at a Baptist university in Tennessee, and he once told me he feared for my soul. And I, I, you know, your mind is so dark. I said, the real world is much darker than anything I can come up with. Right. And, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, you, you see two people doing terrible things all the time and, uh, and, or terrible things happening that are outside of people's control. And, yeah. you know, if you can somehow reflect some of that, but add order to it, even if it's just by making it sort of funny, it makes it tolerable and easier to to deal with. So humor is a defense mechanism against the horrors of the world, and it helps you. I'm paraphrasing Jerry Garcia, late of the Grateful Dead, right. and the, the great guitarist. You know, and he said. Uh, he was talking about heroin, of course, and I'm not talking about heroin, but he said heroin or yeah, heroin 
for Jerry Garcia took all the problems in his life and mind and put them into one little box that he could manage. And it doesn't have to be heroin to do that for you. I think that, you know, what horror does is it takes terrible things in the world and makes them manageable and or palatable to people so that they can get acquainted with it so it's slightly less unfamiliar, but still not be threatened by it. And I think it just, you know, plus, I mean, I have to confess that part of me just loves horrible things and (laughs) and, uh, people doing horrible things to one another, not in real life, but, you know, I, I, I don't know. It's a, uh, it's a fundamental uh, derangement of what otherwise people might call good sensibility. Right. So, you know, it, it is what it is. I've always been drawn to big people or creatures or, or supernatural entities doing bad things to other people, creatures or supernatural entities. So, you know, and it, it's interesting. You said I have a degree in religion, which I do. And that is also fascinating to me because a lot, not a lot of what I do is supernatural, but some of it is. And I think you can learn a lot about, I read an article by some, I think, French historian or theologian, not about him, he wrote it. And he was talking about if you take away the religion of a society uh, or a culture, you don't really have a culture anymore. And there's a lot of truth to that because people define reality according to some ultimate commitment to uh, indelible principles or things they believe in come hell or high water. And you can learn a lot about a society in the way they they worship or you know validate the fundamental beliefs that, that govern their assumptions about the world. Right. And a lot of that in religion is the promise of, at least in Christianity, the promise of terrible things will happen to you if you don't do certain things. You know. Right. To the point where it becomes a, a means of control. So I grew up going to a parochial school that empha- that used that even when they didn't know they were using it. And it was a it was a very eye-opening experience because, you know, some of, not all of the teachers, but some of the teachers really sort of felt that it didn't matter who was right or wrong. All that mattered was I'm in power and you're not. And that power comes from the church and therefore from God. You know? Right. And once you once you see people acting with power on the basis of irrational commitments, even irrational within the framework that they claim to subscribe to, you know, you become extremely both skeptical of the world and of people, but also very, you try to be very guarded and circumspect in your judgments because, you know, you just, you become very, as I have, skeptical of systems, skeptical of charismatic people, skeptical of anything that causes that causes people to bypass the rational parts of their brains and go straight to feeling or lizard brain, right? Right. And horror does that. Horror is, to me, a lot of that is, you know, people behaving irrationally, especially when people rationalize irrational behavior, you know, because there's an ironic component to that that makes it even scarier. Oh, yeah. So one of the best, one of my favorite villain slash serial killer horror icons is Dr. Hannibal Lecter. Okay. Yeah. And in Hannibal, the third film, yeah. I, I remember nurse his nurse Barney was talking to Agent Clary Starling and, and he said that uh because Hannibal Lecter prized manners, you know, almost above everything else, that he described he said that when he had when he ate people, he preferred to eat rude people. And he <laughs> called them free range rude. You know? <laughs> And so that way, murdering and cannibalizing people ends up serving something of a public good, right? Right. So 
you know, and there's a there's a there's a logic to that, but it's it's madness, right? Right. And you know, you see terrible things happen in the name of supposedly reasonable commitments. And so that ultimately is even more terrifying in the sense that people are using grounded, supposedly rational judgments to do terrible things to other people. So when when the Catholic Church during the Auto de Fe was executing heretics and having them burned at the stake and torturing torturing confessions out of them, which is in heretics, you know, they, they followed very specific rules. There was a whole system of torture and execution that they followed. And they, they essentially rationalized the terrible things they were doing so that somehow if you add rigor to your doing terrible things, then it's it's somehow less terrible, even though in my opinion it's more terrible. Right. And watching one of my dogs, I, I had to have one of my dogs euthanized. Uh, and the first time I, I've had to have three of them euthanized, actually, and it's no less terrible every time. I'm sorry. Thank you. Uh, you know, it's it's one of the consequences of dog ownership. Right. And what's really scary to me is the is the practice precision and ease with which you you kill the dog. And you know, of course, that's good for the dog because it's the most painless and kindest way to do it. But if you watch it from a disinterested point of view, it, it just looks kind of terrifying because you're you're taking a life in a really systematic and clean way. Yeah. And, you know, Batman once said in one of his adventures, you know, a gun makes killing too easy. You know, that's one of the reasons he eschews guns. But it also reminded me of a scene. Did you see the movie, Michael Bay's movie, The Island, which came out in 2005? I did. I, I saw that when it first came out. Um, yeah. I, I think that in many ways, that's one of the greatest movies made about the Holocaust of all time. And I, I say that because, not because it's a movie per se about the Holocaust, the, you know, the German extermination of Jews before and during World War II, but rather because... It shows the systematic dehumanization of people for a higher goal and the systemati- the systematization and the and in the in the case of the movie, the monetization of that right. is what makes it all the more terrible. There's a scene in which this couple gets this infertile couple gets a, a baby that was uh, that was grown in utero in one of the, uh, the clones that are being kept underground. And there's a there's a juxtaposition of the scene where the, the parents are getting their newborn baby, and the, the mother who's just given birth wants to hold it and keeps asking, where's my baby, where's my baby? And the nurse puts a lethal injection in her in her port, in her IV, and kills her while the couple is still receiving the baby. You know? <laughs> that, that's, you know, it's sort of, it's funny in a really twisted way, but it's right. extraordinarily disturbing at the same time. Yeah. Right? That you can just kill people so cleanly and efficiently. To, to bring this back to my book, that's one of the things I found so fascinating uh, about guardian, I mean, uh, angels of death in the medical care context. And that's why one of the reasons I wrote medical malpractice, right? Yeah. How better if you want to kill a bunch of people under the guise of healing them than to stage some kind of calamitous event that causes lots of victims and then show up and start killing them and everything looks perfectly normal, you know? Right. And they, they rationalize it by saying that well, they're saving the taxpayers money. <laughs> Actually, I don't even think they rationalize it. I think they just enjoy it. Well, you yeah. Know? <laughs> you know, but yeah, there are plenty of people who 
there are plenty of people who think that killing lots of people is a way to solve problems. And it's rather terrifying, actually. When I was practicing criminal law, I used to be a criminal defense attorney. I was approached, I was standing in the line at the post office one day, and I lived in Arizona. And Arizona is a really conservative place. Even if it's not, even if the person in charge is a Democrat and not a Republican or a conservative party person, that the, the DNA of the state is a very conservative, you know. Yeah. And very fearful. And I was talking to this guy. I told him, he asked what I did. I told him, and he, he decided to get confrontational, not in an overt way, but he said, you know, I think that we should take all the drug dealers and round them up in a football stadium and execute them, which is what something that the former education secretary, Bill Bennett, suggested when he was drug czar, actually he was a drug czar too in the Reagan administration. Hmm. And so the guy asked me, well, what do you think about that? And I said, I think it would just raise the prices, you know, and he laughed because he knew I was right, you know, but I didn't want to get into an argument with him about human dignity and how horrible it is when government commits mass murder. But the fact that he seemed to think it was perfectly okay for the government to commit mass murder in that context and it, it is really troubling because I'm I'm sure that he was otherwise a perfectly law-abiding citizen. I, I didn't get any sense that he had any difficulties, and I, I dealt with people with lots of difficulties as a criminal defense attorney. But there is this underlying ethos in the American character that you know is willing to do terrible things to people who are apparently enemies of conformity, and I think that that goes to our Puritan roots, you know. The Puritans were came out of a Calvinist Reformed theological tradition, if I remember correctly, and they were deep. They believed deeply in predestination. That right. Your salvation or damnation was totally in God's hands, not your own. There's nothing you could do, up or down, to change that. And there was this famous, actually, the father of sociology, this German guy named Max Weber, wrote this book called "The Spirit of the Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism." And he said that his thesis, which I find compelling, is that capitalism in part was driven by Americans, especially, who wanted some proof, reformed theological Americans, who wanted some proof that they had been saved. And so they started to equate prosperity in this world with salvation in the next. And I think the darker side of that is that there's a tendency to see the opposite as evidence of God's condemnation. Right. Right. And so it's if you're not prosperous and if you're let's say you're a criminal or even accused of a crime, then obviously you're on God's shit list. And that means we can do whatever we want to you because you're already going to hell. Right. Right. <laughs> so it, it's funny, too, because when and I don't want to dive um, veer too off course into conspiracy theory. But if you've ever done any research on the, the supposed New World Order and, you know, all that stuff that's been going on in the conspiracy circles, they supposedly the New World Order's plan is that it's easier to control a million people than it is to control a billion people. So their solution is call the population by whatever means necessary, a pandemic or anything. And then yeah, that way, like, you know. It sounds like Hydra in Captain America, the Winter Soldier. Yeah, or, or Thanos so, for that matter. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. And that's how... That's how totalitarian systems work. They they kill the nonconforming and how the others accordingly. Right. And yeah, I mean, I think that 
Two things. Conspiracy theories are yet another way for people to take extremely complex situations and boil them down into manageable bits. And they boil them down at their own peril. And because the, the way they do it is ultimately, it, it ultimately doesn't represent reality. It yeah. converges on magical thinking, if it's not embracing it. But it does give them some psychological comfort that, oh, well, this, at least I understand the world, right? Yeah. Because we, we have an, in, I think human beings have an intrinsic need to order things, order the world. If for no other reason, as a kind of self-defense, right? Yeah. Um, Walter Lippmann, if I remember correctly, Walter Lippmann, who was the guy that created the New Republic and was, and maybe was the father of political psychology, made an observation that people function according to stereotypes because that's the way the mind allows people to, to navigate the real world, right? So the mind makes judgments about good, bad, ugly, beautiful, et cetera, all the time. And some of these, you know, and, and a lot of it, I'm not saying it's good or bad, what I'm saying is, is it's like a, it's a psychological way for, for you to proceed in the world, right? Yeah. And sometimes these are, these stereotypes are horribly tainted um, and you have to get rid of them, but Sometimes they just serve a purpose, like, uh, you know, I'm not going to go near a snake because it might be venomous, right? I don't know if it's venomous, but there's no upside in finding out, right? right? Um, that's just one example. And the problem with thinking in stereotypes, obviously, is that they are blunt instruments. And they don't account for variety. They don't account for, like I said, variety variations on the theme and they can pollute your thinking if you aren't fully aware of the fact that you are using a stereotype to view the world and this is where this is one of the other ways where people can do terrible things because they see the world through stereotypical lenses and they they just write people off they they use it as a way of erasing the essential integrity or dignity of people and living beings. I mean, one of the most horrible things in the world to me is factory farming. You know, I mean, the systematic slaughter of animals so people can eat them and without necessity. And I mean, some people need to eat protein and we're part of the food chain. So I I understand that. But this idea that we just slaughter a billion chickens every year so people can have chicken nuggets, that strikes me as depraved. And... (laughs) You know, the fact that so many people make money off it and people eat them and they don't even think about it. Right, yeah. It's just, it's just part of the landscape. What is it? There's a wonderful quote from The Pretenders. In the bloody third world, uh, the uh, the orphans just come with the scene or something. You know, uh, I think it's from the song Middle of the Road. And what that, what that Im- indicates is that there's suffering and terrible things happening, but People are so accustomed to it that they don't even see it. And so you just, one of the other things, and I'm, I'm sort of being roundabout here, like I said about horror, syncing back up with your idea of conspiracy theories is that people will simplify their thinking and then use their simplifications to validate doing terrible things. Exactly, exactly. You know what that makes me think of? You had mentioned Batman, the character, earlier. That makes me kind of think of the Punisher, because, like, when I read the Punisher, I think he's a good guy. I'm I'm rooting for him, you know, but he's, realistically, he's doing bad things. (laughs) Yeah, he's nihilistic. 
Right. In fact, Garth Ennis, who had a magnificent run on The Punisher back from, I think it was 2003 to 2012, maybe. I, he said that uh, Marvel said you can write The Punisher as long as you want. And that was a wise decision because Garth Ennis is a brilliantly sardonic and subversive writer. Oh, yeah. And, but you're right. I mean, there's, in fact, Garth Ennis saw The Punisher as a nihilist. And I think there's a story in which he writes the Punisher as the last man on Earth, and the Punisher can't imagine doing anything but committing suicide because he doesn't have anything to live for anymore. Right. And it reminds me of the comment by St. Augustine that all sin is a form of misordered love. It's an intrinsic good that is perverted so that it becomes like an idol, or it's, it's perverted out of its relation to other virtues and therefore becomes you know, a terrible thing. So the Punisher wants to fight crime. The Punisher wants to protect innocent people, both good things, but just murdering everyone, you know, that, that's way out of, that's way out of line, especially when he's murdering people who haven't necessarily killed anyone. Right. But yet it's still not considered horror. You know, is that yeah. weird? Uh, yeah, because I think a lot of people, I think one of the reasons is that I think the Terminator is also horror, but it isn't considered that typically. Um, even though the Punisher and the Terminator are a lot alike, yeah. right? their mission is to kill. Right. And the Punisher's mission at least obliquely protects the innocent. But at the end of the day, the Punisher really is just killing people out of a mani- maniacal need for revenge. Right. You know, after his family is executed. But you're right. I mean, there's, there's a heroic component to what he does because the, the people he kills are often terrible people who are a real threat to society. Yeah. And I always thought, I, at some point, I, I'm pretty sure that he joined the Avengers. I don't know. I mean, Blade joined the Avengers, so I can't imagine the Punisher didn't join the Avengers. Right. <laughs> um, but you're right, and it reminds me of Judge Dredd. Yes. He's a terrible, terrible person. Right. You know? <laughs> and, you know, he, he's absolutely without mercy. But sometimes, and I'm thinking of the Necropolis storyline in which the Dark Judges take over Mega City 1. And, and systematically start executing everyone there. Right. You know, sometimes you need him because the enemy you're fighting is even more terrible. Right. And that's what makes it interesting that you have this terrible person with absolutely no mercy who will enforce any law no matter what, or at least did for the longest time, and no matter how morally obscene. And yet sometimes you have to have this person. It's it's like Jack Nicholson's favorite famous speech in A Few Good Men. You yes. can't handle the truth. Right. How dare you, you know, enjoy the security of, you know, the security blanket I provide and then criticize me for providing it. Right, right. I provide the very blanket of freedom under which you sleep every night. Yeah, exactly. So, and most people can't deal with that kind of complexity. They want to think in cartoons because it's reassuring. If for no other reason their lives are so already filled with other concerns that they don't want to spend the intellectual or emotional energy to comprehend things that don't appear to have any immediate consequential value for them. Right. Yeah. So they, they end up thinking in stereotypes and cartoons. Right. They default, right. they default to the sort of state of nature way of proceeding. Oh yeah. So in terms of horror, um, where did it all start for you growing up? You said you grew up in, or you told me off mic, you grew up in New York. Did you, um, did you watch like the late night horror shows like Fright Night and Chiller on WOR? Well, yes. I, I remember the first hosted horror show that I really loved was 
Commander U. I think it was Commander USA's groovy movies. Yep, I remember that. But I, I always liked horror. The first horror movie I remember that really had an impact on me was this William Shatner thing from 1978 or 9 called Kingdom of the Spiders. Yes. <laughs> which is magnificent. It's so terrifying, especially the scene where the cow comes out of the barn covered with spiders. Right. <laughs> you know, and they end up webbing up the whole town. Yeah, that's a that's a truly horrifying movie. But the movie I was most obsessed with as a kid was the second Halloween, the sequel to Halloween that came out in 1981. Oh, yeah. In which Michael Myers wipes out an entire hospital before he hunts down Laurie Strett. Right. You know, and there's a wonderful irony to that in which a place of healing becomes a place of horror. Right. And, you know, that movie, uh, it, it almost ruined the song Mr. Sandman for me. I, for years, that song would just scare the shit out of me. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just the way, like, the song Jeepers Creepers yes. arguably didn't survive Jeepers Creepers. Yeah, exactly. And it's funny because um, that you mentioned Kingdom of the Spiders because I was a guest uh, a couple months ago on a, another podcast called Monster Kid Radio. And um, yeah. we talked about that movie, which was kind of cool. But for me, and I've told the story on the show before, I remember back in 1972, I vividly remember this. I'm two years old in the back of my parents' car at the drive-in, and we saw this anthology film called Asylum that had Peter Cushing in it and um, Herbert Lom. And it was, it was really scary. It was a PG movie, but at the time, you know, when I was two, it was terrifying. And the ironic, or not really ironic, but the funny part about it was that my mother and I could not remember the name of the film afterwards, so for years we called it Chopping Heads until <laughs> I finally saw it on TV. <laughs> but I, I kept having flashes of that movie as I was reading your book because it had that amicus anthology film feel to it, you know, that EC Comics, which, you know, you, you listed as one of your inspirations. It had that total perfect vibe throughout the novel that's one thing i really loved about it thank you yeah ec comics i remember it was spring of 1987 i was 14 years old and i got my first collection of ec comics i think it was tales from the crypt and vault of horror i think those were the first two i got they were reprints color reprints some of the best stories from the runs and I just sat down, and I think I read both of them in one sitting. And it was like, where have you been all my life? Yeah. You know, <laughs> I, I felt like I was meeting, you know, sort of my my intellectual and imaginative soulmates, you know, in, in reading these. I, I, I remember this one story that, that stuck with me. It was called Taint the Meat, It's the Humanity. And it's set in World War II during – and I don't, I'm, I'm not sure a lot of people realize this, but during the – during World War II, there was a lot of rationing in the United States because the military had to have as much material, you know, as much raw material as possible, food, yeah. metal, cloth, you name it. And so meat was rationed and people got coupons from the government, but they, they didn't get any more than a certain amount. And so the story is about this butcher who is running a black market, black market in choicer meats. And what he does is he he sells the choice meats to people and then, you know, collects the coupons from other people and gives them horse meat. And throughout the story, he's giving the, the people progressively more rotten meat until what happens is, is his son eats at the house of one of the people to whom he sells the rotten meat and he promptly dies in front of him and his wife. Okay. And his wife has found out what he's been doing. So in the, the final panel, 
the next morning, the wife is standing at the counter in the butcher shop wearing the, the apron, and her husband has been cut up into choice cuts and is in the freezer facing out towards uh, customers. You know, <laughs> it's just perfect. That's awesome. Yeah. That's so and that kind of the ironic ending that made it all palatable was the genius to the genius of DC Comics. You know, I, I don't really care to watch a horror movie uh, in which just terrible things happen to people. Right. Um, not that they aren't effective, but they're just depressing. You know, they, they don't, the, the real world, like I said, is horrible enough. And in order to be tolerable, entertaining, what have you, there has to be some kind of comedic edge to it. If for no other reason than in the real world, people have add a comedic edge to terrible things because uh, because that's how they, they, they deal with them. And uh, that's one of the reasons my two favorite horror films of all time are Return of the Living Dead from 1985. Yes. And Reanimator, also from 1985. Oh, yeah. And those movies are both ridiculously funny. Yeah. You know, they're insanely violent, insanely gory. But so funny at the same time. Oh, yeah. A lot like Dead Alive, Peter Jackson's film. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a brilliant film. Yeah. And do you ever see The Human Centipede? I've seen scenes from it. I haven't seen the whole thing, though. Oh, first just, of all, uh... I don't recommend it. <laughs> okay. It, it, I, it took me two nights to get through. Now, I'm a grown man, right? I'm, I'm 51 now. I think I saw it when it came out probably five, six years ago. Maybe even like 10 years ago. But it took yeah. me two nights to get through it, and I had nightmares both nights. And I will never, ever watch that again. And there was nothing humor in it. There was no nothing redeemable about it. It was just awful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what if, you know, your typical horror movie, it seems to me that the, if, you're, if you're not going to be funny, you, you at least should be titillating, right? Yeah. That's why you have all these horror movies with all this gratuitous nudity, right? So yeah. at least there has to be some something to... Something to offset the pure horror of what's going on. And if you don't do that, it's, it's, it's just too much, right? Yeah. So, you know, plus, I mean, I, I'm, you know, I'm speaking from a purely aesthetic point of view, but I'm sure that, you know, people, one of the reasons people put gratuitous nudity in horror films is that it attracts more viewers. Oh, yeah. So, but since he's... I remember there was a joke on Family Guy once in which... What was it? The, the, some of the characters were making a movie, and they, they needed to add a gratuitous nude scene, and so they did. And then I think it was Peter Peter Griffin says, hey, now we've got a movie. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's so true. Hello, this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On The Bloody Pit... We have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love. A look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil. And our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. 
Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So join me and my rotating crew of co-hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't? Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody Pit. So join me for The Bloody Pit. Shark Bites, Shark Bites Podcast, it's the greatest show in history, from the Dorkening Network, hosted by a nerd who's named Patsy. From movie reviews to tips on surviving the coronavirus, Shark Bites has it all. Follow us on Facebook and suggest topics at sharkbitespod at gmail.com. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters you won't believe your ears when you listen to monster kid radio here are your host derek m cook and his ever rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not so classic monster movies subscribe to monster kid radio through itunes or stitcher or visit MonsterKidRadio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival, Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the Head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio. Oh man! So what's uh, what's your opinion of Stephen King? I love Stephen King short form stuff like Creepshow and Cycle of the Werewolf. Um, and I love a lot of the adaptations of his stuff. Like, the original adaptation of Salem's Lot is amazing. Just amazing. Oh, yeah. Like, the scene where uh, James Mason and the, who, I don't know who played the vampire, confront the priest. And James Mason's like, you know, just, just you and, you know, he says, confront the master. It's like, put away your, your collar, put away your, your crucifix, just you and the master, you know. It was, it was great. That and the scene where David Soul is sitting with the, uh, the, the dead mother of the, of the two boys who became vampires. Yeah. And she, she comes back to life on the slab in the morgue, and he, he forms a cross out of two tongue depressors yeah. to ward her off. That's awesome. You know, that, that and, uh, you know, I think that, Stephen King has a lot of terrific ideas also outside of horror, like The Running Man, which is sort of a horror movie, but oh, yeah. it's sort of horror science fiction. I don't read a lot of long fiction because 
I don't know. I mean, most long fiction doesn't hold my interest because it, it's just probably because I just have a short attention span from watching too much television as a kid. <laughs> um, in fact, when I was in college, most of what I studied was poetry. It was in it was in Latin, but still, I you know, I sort of for better or for worse got to a point where if I was going to read fiction, it was short fiction or poems. Right. When I was a lawyer, I had to read lots of nonfiction. That's something totally different. Yeah, yeah. So I don't read a lot of long Stephen King because it just, you know, I don't read a lot of long horror, frankly. The only long horror that I really, truly enjoyed because I just, his language just flows, is H.P. Lovecraft. I was just going to bring him up, yeah. Even his long horror, though, isn't that long. Right. So I, I guess that I'm, you know, for, for the same reason I haven't, I don't know if I've read any Dickens, you know, because it's just, I, I don't know, it's too much uh, to keep track of. And, you know, unless the pro style is overwhelming, magnificently overwhelming, and it's something I want to read, I right. just don't tend to read a lot of long fiction. And I said recently that William Faulkner is a magnificent prose stylist, but the stuff he writes about intergenerational family relationships, you know, that has, that holds negative appeal for me. Yeah. You know, I don't care about how much you hate your dad or how you feel thwarted because you didn't live up to your dreams or this, that, and the other thing. You know, I, you know not, I'm not saying it's not great literature. It is. But by and large, I just don't care. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> You know, you know what author I really love, and it's not horror, is um, P.G. Woodhouse, who wrote, yes. um, you know, Jeeves and Worcester and all those hilarious stories. Those, those are novels that I, I'll, I'll read in like a day because they're just so funny. The early Evelyn Waugh is like that. He, he, he before um, Brideshead Revisited, he wrote a bunch of comic novels. Oh yeah. And the the ones I read were funny. And oh, there is one fiction author who's whose prose style is so magnificent, I will read, no matter how long it is. And that's uh, James Elroy, the crime writer. Okay. He has a magnificent, just this wonderful way of capturing character and writing dialogue that, you know, it's sort of, you're either really into it or you're not. I'm really into it. I mean, that doesn't mean there's no middle ground appreciation, but you know, if you understand what he's doing, then, you know, it's just absolutely delightful to read him. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, serial killers play uh, a part in several of your stories. Do you have a fascination with them? Uh, yeah, I would say that I find them interesting to a certain degree. I mean, let's put it this way. I find serial killers interesting to the extent that they are smart enough, that they are smart enough to sort of realize what they're doing but so depraved that they can't not do it. In I think it was common law and criminal law, there was a defense. I think some states still have it called the irresistible impulse defense to culpability, in which you know there is something. It's almost like a reflex. Huh. You know, you you shouldn't do this terrible thing, but you can't resist. It's like literally, it's like being hit on the. It's like being hit on the knee with the doctor's mallet, and you kick up, right? Right. Can't help it. So I, I think that I think the concept of the serial killer is often much more interesting than the serial killer. Yeah. Because there are some serial killers who are just horribly broken people. 
and they're just lashing out. I'm thinking of Eileen Warnos. But there are some serial killers like John Wayne Gacy is just endlessly fast. He was a very clever man and very charming. Yeah. And even after he was convicted, he said the only crime he'd committed murdering all those people and burying them in his basement was I the only crime I committed was running an unlicensed mortuary. Right? Hmm. And I think that you know, because our country doesn't have a native culture. I mean, we have culture wars because we have all these groups competing to define what America is. Right. Right. And that's because we don't necessarily have an organic culture. We have all this immigration, and the cultures of the people who immigrate can often supplant the cultures of the people who are here. And so it's in some ways it's there's a churn all the time. Things are up for grabs. And I think that that inspires a kind of conformity because Often people are from somewhere else. Nobody knows their neighbors. They don't necessarily trust anybody. And so any kind of difference causes fear. And it's like going back to the old stereotype crime. And so I think that that fear and also the being repressed actually encourage sort of homicidal fantasies in people, right? They just like, like all the workplace violence you see, right? I, I, I made an observation to a friend of mine years ago. I said that I read a story about France, and it was happening in China, too. It's like people are protesting their horrible working conditions by committing suicide. In the United States, they protest by going and killing a bunch of people at their workplace. Right. <laughs> what, what's, the, what's, the, what's wrong with this picture? Right. And I think that people have an, many people have an ongoing fantasy about just killing everyone that displeases them. Yeah, And then that's abetted or fortified by their fear of other people because they don't really know their neighbors. And their their neighbors may not be that much like them, except the fact that they happen to live in the United States and maybe like to watch the same football team. Yeah. And that only gets worse when people's families are, are divided by the economy, ge- geography, this, that, and the other thing. So, you know, it's... Uh, it's horrifying. Serial killers are horrifying in that respect because we, a lot of people could see in themselves readily the likelihood that they might do some of this. So they'll never admit it, right? But, well, sometimes people admit it. Some of the people who call for gun control, for example, say, well, you know, if, if, there, if, if I ever had a gun, I would kill all these people, right? <laughs> and they just frankly admit it. It's like, oh, okay, well, at least we know that. Right. <laughs> but there, there's a refusal of people to acknowledge the bad stuff. And John Carpenter said this. He said the, the, the most dangerous people are the people who repress the darker, supposedly darker side of their personality. Right. The, the, you know, the people who are more upfront about it, you know, or who find, a, who find a creative and healthy way to express it are probably the people that you can readily trust or at least not fear as much. Yeah. So I keep thinking there's a, you know, I was thinking about one of my favorite graphic novels is Wanted by Mark Millar and J.G. Jones. And the, the movie that came out in 2007 does not do it justice. It's just very different. Right. Probably because the graphic novel could not be made into a marketable film. The graphic novel is about this, this guy named Wesley Smith, I think. And, you know, he's this utterly repressed, beta male, pathetic office worker who the, the world has completely dominated him. All the people in his life dominated. 
And lo and behold, he learns that he's actually the son of the world's greatest assassin. And the group that his father belonged to before he died invites him to take up his father's mantle. And they prove to him under threat of death that he actually has his father's skills. And in the second chapter of the story, which I think is entitled colorfully, Fuck You, <laughs> uh, Wesley goes from being a vegetarian nebbish to being a total ass kicker. And one of the things he has to do to get there is he has to go and kill everyone who ever pissed him off, right? Yeah. So, so there's a scene where he's just, he's standing above a bathtub where this teacher from like third grade that he had <laughs> who pissed him off is, is taking a bath in horror. And he like tosses a, a toaster that's plugged in into the water to electrocute him, <laughs> you know? And it, it, it's basically a movie about supervillains doing right. terrible things. Not a movie, but a, a graphic novel. And it, it's just magnificent. And, and Millar picked up on the fact that, you know, a lot of people, probably most people, have this undying adolescent fantasy of just conforming the world to their desires. And if that means killing lots of people, then all the better, right? Yeah. And obviously, most people never act on this. It's a vanishingly small number of people who do. But the fact that you can see those instincts in people writ large in serial killers often is what makes them interesting. So what if you could just kill all the problems you had? Or what if you could just go out and, you know, you had this insatiable desire for things on the, that were never on the menu, except maybe in places where you wouldn't want to go. Right. And, you know, you can, you can transgress and, and, you know, our society is always looking for the transgressive while they're trying to repress whatever is really transgressive. I, I, I love the fact that Howard Stern pointed out that or when Howard Stern was at his the apogee of his success, well, no, when he was on the run-up to that, he uh, discovered that the people who hated him listened to his show twice as long as the people who loved it. That's right, yeah. Because <laughs> they wanted to hear what he would say next. Right. And I view Howard Stern back when he was controversial, as a kind of safety valve for our culture. He would say things that other people couldn't. Right. And it made life more tolerable because, you know, we live in a, a very repressive culture. And it's because, it's ironic because it prizes individuality. But at the end of the day, because nobody really knows anyone else, because we have so much fear, uh, going back to the Puritans, we have this you know, it's like Young Goodman Brown by Nathaniel Hawthorne. We have this constant fear that, you know, we're going to go out someday and the devil's going to take us. Right, right. And it's not the devil anymore per se, but it's something else. Yeah. And I, I'm not sure we'll ever get rid of that. So yeah. our institutions, our social structures are informed by it indelibly in many ways. Yeah. And so we, you know, it is, it is what it is. But it, it's a really interesting place to make horror because it allows for complicated, ironic forms of horror, not just, oh, there's a vampire rampaging the countryside kind of horror. Right. Maybe Elizabeth Bathory being a noted exception to that. So, But even then, that's, an ex that's interesting because it's an exploitation of the system. As I recall, the reason she was able to take all these peasant girls and bleed them out for her skincare was... That peasants, wherever she lived, was it Romania or Transylvania, somewhere in Eastern Europe, they weren't allowed to testify in court. You know, there, there, there were rules against 
anyone but nobility being able to give testimony. And so nobody, people were legally stopped from giving credibility to the very victim she was, she was uh, targeting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that, that's sort of reflected in, in um, of course, I, I, forgive me for not remembering all the titles on your short stories, but um, where the people from the old folks' home were kind of basically bleeding out the, the kids from the orphanage. Right. Yeah. Two disposable populations, and they're supposed to be, you know, we're supposed to have sympathy for them. Right. And you can always find depravity, right? And and so the one disposable population is, is uh, preying on the other. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and in talking about serial killers, I just wanted to um, ask you if you were familiar with this guy. I'm not a huge serial killer aficionado just because I just find the, the, the topic kind of scary because, like, I like my horror to be a little bit more... Uh, fake or fantasy oriented, like you know, like I, I like John Carpenter's The Thing. That was the first horror movie I saw that didn't scare the shit out of me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a magnificent movie. Yeah. Yeah. But like serial killer movies, I love you know, uh, you know uh, Hannibal Lecter and all that. But I, I I tend to watch them maybe once, maybe twice, like the movie Seven, because yeah. it just it just disturbs me personally on a certain level, and I'm just too, I just get too scared. But yeah. um, one guy I do know about and I've read about is H. H. Holmes. Have you heard of this guy? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. The, there's a there's an old Arch Obler's Lights Out radio show about that called Murder Castle. Yeah, and it, it basically it takes H. H. Holmes some of his activities and turns it into a drama. Oh, that's and, interesting. No, no, he was a he was a diabolical genius. You know, extraordinarily horrifying. Yeah. Had a graduate, I think, of, of the University of Michigan Medical School. So maybe he he failed out, but he was definitely not a dumb guy by any stretch of the imagination. Oh yeah. Yeah, you're right. I mean, very terrible, very terrifying, very clever. So. And I heard uh, years ago, I heard an interview with his, I guess, his grandson. It might be his. It's either grandson or great grandson, whose name I think is James Mudgett, and he wrote a book about. H. H. Holmes, and he basically, in his investigations and trying to find out, you know, his his lineage and who H. H. Holmes was, he came to the conclusion that it's very likely that Holmes was also Jack the Ripper, because there's something to do with the timing of the murders, the Ripper murders in London, the timing with the 1893 World's Fair, with the you know the hotel that he turned into the murder castle, and the the transport time between the two, you know, going from boat from London to America again. And he's, I don't know if he's completely proved it, but it's very, at least in his mind, it's very likely that Holmes was the um, the Ripper. Sounds like it would be a great miniseries. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I always thought that would, it was fascinating. In fact, they used that. There was a show I, I watched. Uh, it only lasted one or two seasons about these time travelers, and they end up in the murder castle. Um, I can't remember the name of it, but it was recent. But um, I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. The, the the three people in that white sphere, timeless. Yeah, I think I know. I don't. I don't. Yeah, I remember that. Show. Yeah, yeah. So because I'm watching it and I'm watching, I'm going, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know this story. This sounds so familiar. And I I ran to my bookshelf and pulled, found the book. I'm like, this is the guy. <laughs> I showed my wife, and she was like, oh wow. <laughs> do you listen to the last podcast on the left? I do not. That is a true crime or paranormal podcast and it's a lot of fun uh it's on spotify now and they did a they do extended treatments of serial killers they call gold star serial killers people whose depravity is so over the top that you know it deserves the highest rating you know they're very subversive 
and they did a, I think, a three or four part episode uh, or arc of episodes about H.H. Holmes that's well worth listening to. I'll have to check that out. So, yeah, H.H. Holmes just murdered everybody who got in the way. I mean, you know, I mean, you're just, you're right. I mean, he was a terrible, terrifying person, just like Hannibal Lecter. So, yeah, no, I agree. And who is that? I'm trying to think of the guy on Long Island who uh, murdered children and he would insert needles into his body. He was also really diabolical. I'm trying to remember oh, his name. I don't recall off the top of my head. But, yeah, it's it's interesting because, uh, you know, we, we, we tend to, it, it's funny, in, in America we tend to distrust eccentricity because we assume everybody who's eccentric is some sort of murderer. Right. And... The, the only time we can deal with it is if it's in fiction, you know. Yeah. I, one of my favorite movies is uh, Darkness Falls from 2003. Oh, yeah. And the, the premise is, is that the, uh, the Tooth Fairy is actually a terrible evil spirit that kills children. And the, the origin of the Tooth Fairy is this, there was a woman living in this small New England town who would, give, who would give coins to children if they brought her their baby teeth after they came out she kept them in jars, which is pretty weird, but not necessarily dangerous yeah. or indicative of a dangerous person. And these two boys go missing. And so the whole town assumes that this woman must have killed them. And so they, they burn her at the stake, you know. And then the kids show up. There's no due process. They just round her up and burn her at the stake. And so she, her ghost plays the town and murders children who put teeth under their bed, under their pillows for the tooth fairy, you know. and it goes to that idea that you know, you know, we're just gonna we're just gonna burn people at the stake if we don't like them or if we're afraid of them, you know, which is a very human impulse. But somehow in America, it just feels mob justice feels like it 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 feels like it's like the default position for many people in their thinking. Right. You know. Right. There's a there's a lovely sequence in in Meredith Burgess play and film called the uh, the Music Man. In which Robert Preston, who's a con artist, trying to sell a boys' band to these to this unsuspecting town in Iowa, yep. uh, notices that there's a new billiards parlor in town, and so he he does this musical number, later parodied by The Simpsons, <laughs> in which he 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 gets the townsfolk whipped up into a moral panic about how the billiard parlor is going to corrupt all of their children, and the the cure for this corrupting influence is a boys' band, and he right. says, "Oh, you've got." Trouble in River City. The, the idle mind is the devil's playground. And I think that when you look at the people's alienation from one another in this country, and their also fierce sense of right and wrong and justice, you know, that sort of transcends, that, that transcends right reason often. Uh, you know, bad things happen. I, I, I remember I saw the crest of a county attorney's office, a prosecutor's office once, and I, I don't know, I don't think they came up with this. I'm sure someone asked because it was in Latin, and I doubt that they hired somebody or had somebody actually create a Latin motto for them, but maybe they did. And it was, uh, the translation was, let justice be done, though the heavens may fall. Or maybe they just used it in English. I don't remember at this point. But if you really think about that, you know, let's destroy the whole world because justice. Right. You know, that's insane. <laughs> that's Judge Dredd. You know, yeah. But this was an actual and still functioning institution. So yeah, that that's the kind of stuff that really scares me. Mobs, you know. Oh yeah. The, the Federalist Madison said out of 
even if every Athenian citizen were a Socrates, every Athenian assembly would still be a mob. Right. And he's right. I mean, the, the, you get enough people together, and they, especially if they're predisposed to think the same way, you get this critical mass. It's like uh, when you get a, a certain number of domesticated dogs together, they start behaving like a pack. Yes. You know? Yeah. And their domestication disappears into the pack. Yeah. So that's why I don't, I don't like mobs. I don't like unanimity of thought. I'm a libertarian, and even if I'm, if I'm surrounded by libertarians, I feel like I should argue non-libertarian positions because, you know, it, it just – whenever everybody's thinking the same way, I, I, get, I, get un, I get unnerved, you know, because the unanimity of thought, in my experience, in human history leads to bad things. There's a book written by two Enlightenment historians at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, it's a survey of witchcraft persecutions from – 400 to 1700 AD. I think that anybody who wants truly to embrace a religious orthodoxy should read this because it's a it's a chronicle through original sources of terrible things done to people in the name of a god and in the name of an orthodoxy. And like I said before, it's like the Inquisition. The people who ran it followed all these procedures and 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 thought that they were doing the Lord's work because they they used procedure to take the emotion out of what they were doing. To make it to make bloodying bloodless. Actually, I think they had a rule against bloodletting, which is why they had the raft, for example. Okay. And you know, it's the consummate rationalization of bad behavior, right? Yeah. And Christopher Hitchens famously said that religion allows bad good people to do bad things, something like that. And I think that that is often true. Hmm. So it's not, you know, it can enable people to do heroic and and great things too. Think about, you know, there's a there was a nun recently sanctified, or canonized rather, uh, who lived around where I live, and she devoted her life to taking care of uh, leprosy victims in a leper's colony in Hawaii, and she eventually died from leprosy. And she knew when she went in, she wouldn't be allowed out, but she gave herself over to to comfort them. And you know, there's a that's heroic virtue, right? Yeah, giving your life to protect somebody else—that's heroic virtue. Oh yeah. So, and sometimes people do it for religious reasons. And I'm not sure that makes it any less heroic. It might, but, you know, it depends on the person. I guess my point is, is that religion doesn't cause all bad things. But when it does cause bad things, they are particularly terrible because they give people permission, like Hitchens said, to do things that you'd like to think healthy moral instincts would avoid or condemn. Right. You know, like Thomas Aquinas, the, the medieval theologian, I think he was the one who said that masturbation was a worse crime than rape because at least if a woman is raped, a child might be born of that union, right? <laughs> and you, you think about that logic, and, you know, it's like it basically treats women like chattel. Right. You know? <laughs> I mean, it's utterly insane. Yeah. I think it, I think that. You know, a lot of people criticize going back to the past and imply and applying modern values to it. And there is a lot to be said to that criticism because it, you know, it erases the it erases the the particularity of people's situations. But you'd like to think that there are a set of principles that are enduring and universal, like I said before. Right. Moral instincts that people don't just don't do this, right? And yet at the same time you have these you know, people buy into this super, this structure of values and beliefs, and 
then they spin them out and terrible things happen. Lo and behold, and it's like, well, you know, it logically follows from this and it must be God's will, right? Right. And you see this in you see this in all thought systems, right? Because people are people. It's Immanuel Kant said famously, out of the crooked timber of humanity, no straight thing can ever be made. And he was a pietist, even though he was ultimately, I mean, he was still a, a Christian, but he he established the fundament for modern secular values. And even he acknowledged that people are imperfect, and you, imperfect beings can't create perfect things. So what was that? There's this hilarious AI experiment a few years ago. I think it was on Twitter. These Maybe it was at these MIT artificial intelligence scientists, I think they created a, an AI Twitter feed to see what would happen. They, and they, they programmed it to learn from Twitter. And it quickly became basically like psychopathic. Yeah. And they had to shut the project down. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wasn't that the one where it was, uh, it was started communicating with other computers in their own kind of language? I don't know about that. I think they were more concerned about the tweets it would generate. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it basically glommed onto the trolls and started imitating them. Right. <laughs> so, and the, the and it probably it probably I mean I don't know I'm I'm really shooting from the hip here but I'm guessing that it equated hits or views with with desirable outcomes. Right. right. And so trolls often get the most attention because they say outrageous and terrible things. And the, the greatest irony is that many trolls are just bots themselves, right? Right. So the, the, the computer was sort of, you know, going back to itself in a way, you know, or, or its own kind. <laughs> right, right. You know, <laughs> it sees its own kind and finds a comfortable place there and, and becomes like it. It's just like tribalism. It's just like us. Right. <laughs> oh, that's too funny. Yeah, and the irony is, is that in the place we seek to be safe, to, to, to hold off the terrible things in the world can often be the thing that's most terrible. Yeah. I mean, uh, every time I hear about someone doing working on an AI, I can only think of Skynet, and it yeah. worries me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. In fact, there is a... I think that there is a... There's a... Is it Jaron Lanier? It's, no, it's not Jaron Lanier. Maybe it's Bill Joy. There's, there's some guru in Silicon Valley, one of these people who's a super genius that has kind of a, a sensei pop role in, in Silicon Valley where corporations will just hire them to be around and bounce ideas on them. Hmm. And one of them recently said, if we're not careful, artificial intelligence will become so much smarter than we are that we'll be like their golden retrievers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so, because they'll, they'll realize how illogical we are and yeah. irrelevant and maybe even consider us, you know, a virus on the planet. <laughs> Well, here's a here's a scarier question. You know, a lot of people think that it, it's there's a there was a traditional debate about dystopian outcomes in society, and some people thought we'd be like Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, and right. some people thought we'd be like 1984 by George Orwell. And what if instead of Skynet, which is sort of like 1984 except more lethal, what if we end up with a more apparently humane thing that's equally Horrible in some ways, like Wally. Yeah, you know? I was just thinking that. People are basically enslaved by their by the machines by being enslaved to their appetites. Yeah, you know they're hugely obese, 
They they communicate to each other through their tablets or, or whatever have you, yet they're sitting right next to each other yeah. <laughs> to the point where they can't even feed themselves. The robots have to feed them because right. they, they can't move their obese bodies. And the ultimate consequence of this is more like the Matrix, in which people are just in, you know, they're, they're caught in, in utero, essentially, being fed fantasies while they power this gigantic evil machine. Yeah, yeah. And one of the debates I have with one of my friends is whether or not it would be ethical. There's a there was this famous philosopher named Robert Nozick who had this query. Um, I, I can't imagine. I, I, I think that he may have gotten it from a science fiction story. He, he came up with it in like 1970, and I'm sure that there was a science fiction story creating that about the same idea. Maybe not. Sounds like something Philip K. Dick would have written. Hmm. The question is, what if there was a machine that you could put yourself into that would sustain you for the rest of your life and allow you to live a perfect fantasy? You'd be in perfect happiness constantly, and you would be recalibrated, right? And you would die in this machine. Would that be an ethical choice for you to do something? Do we have any obligation whatsoever to other people? And that was one of the inspirations for the last story I wrote, Pete Bliss. Yeah, I was going to mention The last story in the collection. Yeah. You know, because this guy is basically enslaved by a purported paradise. Yeah. And it drives him mad. Yeah. <laughs> With an, I'm and not going to say what it is, but there's an ultimate ironic twist at the end, which I loved. Yeah, and it, it was also inspired by a famous, a famous Twilight Zone episode oh, about yeah. a guy who, who dies and thinks he's going to heaven, but he's not. Right. So I, I, I won't spoil. I, I will not do a, a plot spoiler, but. <laughs> You know, people can find it. It's one of the original Rod Serling episodes from the 60s. Yeah, yeah. Mm. You know, and it's funny, too. Like, you mentioned The Matrix, and one of the lines that keeps popping in my head every so often, especially talking about AIs and stuff, is when I forget if it was Neo or or the, uh, what's his name, the guy that created The the Matrix, um, says to Neo that they try. I think it was when Morpheus was telling him, they tried to create a utopian society, and it no backfired. It. Yeah, yeah. And no one. Yeah, exactly. No one would believe it. <laughs> there is a tendency in human beings to, you know, it's like splitting the atom. You always find fault with what you would think was perfect, and then you, you know, you just—it's like an addiction. You just keep chasing a better and better thing, and right. You know, each better thing is just not enough. You know, there, there's a problem with it, or it's just not as fulfilling as you thought of it. Right. Right. And. So, you know, it's it's a kind of madness. So it's interesting the way a lot of people think that the pursuit of pleasure is not just as enslaving as the pursuit of some kind of, or the pursuit of an orthodoxy that denies you pleasure, statuism. It seems to me that they're flip sides of the same coin. And any kind of, you know, it's disordered love. It's, it's taking a, a human good and deranging it so that it is completely out of relation to other value. Right. And what's interesting to me in the West is that the, the cultural revolution against Christianity is at the focal point of one of the, the focal point of its control. And the best way Christianity had to control people outside of violence, you know, just killing people, was to regulate their sexuality. And that if you literally have people by the balls, at least, you know, in a, in a moral sense, then they'll do what you want, right? Yeah. Or they'll, they'll feel shame if they don't. And the focal point of the revolution against that was an inversion of those values. You know, suddenly sexual liberation 
was was the was sort of the tipping point of the backlash against Christianity in in the last fifty years, and now we have a culture that's gone from utter repression to celebration of every variation of sexuality. Right. And I'm not sure that would have happened if we didn't were coming out of a place of utter repression. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It's like every what is it? It's like a law. Of, it's like what is it? Newton's third law: every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Yep. Yeah. You know. So, and again, it's like the place you go, you go to the safe place, right? And only the most ironically challenged people never realize that if you're too, if you try to hammer things down too much to make the safe place, you're going to get the opposite result, right? Right. So, <laughs> so true. it's like Carrie, Carrie's mother, right? Yeah. Carrie's mother is a religious fanatic and Carrie ends up murdering her because she's too repressive. Right. <laughs> Oh, man. Are you a lifelong fan of General Hospital? Are you a new fan who wants to know more about the history of the show? Do you enjoy talking about the show with others? Do you find yourself yelling at the TV? Is your self-care an hour a day in Port Charles? If so, we invite you to join hosts Amanda Kimmel and Shannon Coach at the place where all the hidden conversations take place and secrets are revealed. Meet us at Pier 54, a General Hospital fan podcast. Greetings. This is Mr. Lobo. Are you a Sinsomniac? Do you stay up late and watch what normal people call bad movies till dawn? Black and white low-budget pot boilers, box office bombs, West German talking car movies, rock bands versus monster movies, broken down school films, midget zombie and midget spy flicks, guys in gorilla suit movies, even old TV commercials, inappropriate cartoons, drive-in snack bar ads, and worse? <clears throat> well, we like to say they're not bad movies just misunderstood stay up late with miss mittens your host mr lobo and a revolving door of special guests fellow horror movie hosts robot monsters and lovely real seven girls for a late night tv slumber party that we call cinema insomnia you can watch us on channel osi 74 for roku we even have some episodes on amazon and alpha video dvd you may never get a good night's sleep again Well, do you remember that TV show Happy Days? You know, Fonzie and Richie and all like that? A, sit on it, etc.? Kind of. Then join us for These Days Are Ours, a Happy Days podcast where we watch every episode and give you the lowdown on what it all means. Find us at thesedaysareours.libsyn.com and follow us on Twitter at Fonzie Podcast. Be there or be square. You're sure you don't remember Sock Hops? Sorry, no. Okay, then. You know, in talking about some of these stories here, I, I have to say, for me personally, the ones I found the scariest, and not necessarily because of gore or anything, but it were the ones like um, like Peak Bliss, where you were, you set them in the future, whether it was slightly in the future or further down the road, because they weren't necessarily horror tales, but they they were stuff that could possibly come true in real life like the socialized healthcare and you know the life coach company life sync and i found those to be scarier only because they're within the realm of possibility in the real world oh yeah i mean the the rationing of medical care is inevitable even insurance companies do it yeah and what's 
really interesting to me is that people just don't want to acknowledge this. And the people who do are often the most diabolical because they just they're essentially utilitarian and they just think that at some point you just your life has no value. Yeah. Which is really, really scary. And of course, it's going to end up coming down to dollars and cents. And because this is America, if you try to do something by just denying people care and forcing them to, to swallow the pill, it's going to attract all kinds of bad attention. But if you bribe people, if you say, look, you can either have 18 more months of grandma or five trips to Disneyland, you know, people right. will suddenly be like, gee, grandma, <laughs> you know, you've had a good long life. Right. <laughs> or even better, it's like, well, well, you know, in this case, it's, well, you'll endow the scholarship for your granddaughter to go to medical school and, of course, perpetuate the horror of the system. Right. You know, yeah, I mean, once you, you know, if you turn it into a fight for values, you know, the value, the right to life, human dignity, you're going to get a lot of static and pushback. But if you're, like, just bribing people into using their, into using their own, or you bribe people's relatives into inducing them to give up, you know, which is much more insidious. Yeah. And you're much more likely to get away with that. Oh, yeah. And so the, the title of the book, The uh, A Disgusting Supermarket of Death, comes from the story, and I love this title, Hashtag Me Too, which is spelled M-E-A-T, like meat, O-O, Meat Too, which I thought was a great play on the modern term. Thank you. And it's actually, that's probably my favorite of all the stories. It's about the mortician that sells rich people access to dead celebrities. And... um. So, uh, first of all, I, it's my favorite probably because it's just so depraved. I think <laughs> it's the most depraved of all of them. But w when you're when you're doing when you're writing these stories, and there's you've got a lot of cool uh, stuff in there, like p police procedures and scientific things. For example, in Peak Bliss, um, the character explains to the narrator that while they can wipe his memory so that he can experience pleasure for the first time again the pleasure centers in the brain are physically changed because you've already experienced it so it's not necessarily going to feel the same even if your memory's wiped is that stuff that you did research on no i think that's how addiction works right the dopamine receptors are blunted so you simply can't experience pleasure oh, okay. as well or pleasure at all right after a while after you abuse certain drugs it's the it's it's the reason addiction is so insidious because it changes your brain chemistry or structure. Right. I think that's what I was thinking of. You know that if you make pleasure in and of itself, however expressed in addiction, then why wouldn't the same thing happen? Right. Because it's already changed your brain physically. Yeah. So yeah, I, I uh, yeah I, I well I used to be a criminal defense lawyer. I actually practiced law in, in Los Angeles too, and Los Angeles is a freak show, and I love it for that. <laughs> I mean, I remember I was in a star. I was downtown in Los Angeles once, and I was going. I was getting coffee at this big hotel, and I'm standing in line. And there, it's a Saturday morning, and there are these two women, beautiful women, standing in front of me. And I'm pretty sure that everything they're wearing, except for their shoes, maybe, is made out of vinyl, and it's all quite revealing. And I'm sitting here, and I'm like, oh, they must be porn stars, <laughs> you know? Or so suddenly it strikes me, you know. And I was staying at this. I'm staying at this sort of uh, business lodging thing in in the valley. You know, one of one of those you rent by the week and it's fully furnished. Because I was working in Los Angeles, and I was at the pool complex, and there were all these beautiful people, like in perfect shape, perfectly tanned, wearing all this gold jewelry. Men and women go, and I'm like, wow. You know, and California's a pretty 
physically oriented place as it is, you know. Yeah. It's like the opposite of New York or or the Northeast at least. And then I realized I'm pretty sure that these people are porn stars. You know, and it, it was just sort of that and the here's a trifecta. I still remember when you do too, when in big cities there would be a bunch of newspaper kiosks or newspaper machines on street corners and there would be like five or six different newspapers. Yeah. And I, I remember I spent a summer working in, in DC and there were like I don't know, there were a bunch of newspapers for newspapers domestically and from all over the world. And when I got to Los Angeles not too long after that, they had the same thing except all the newspapers were for pornography or escort services or strip clubs. <laughs> you know. And you know, it was it was just like a different world. Yeah. And and that is part of what led me to this idea that, of course, a coroner or an undertaker in Hollywood is going to sell access to rich weirdos, dead, dead celebrity access to rich weirdos. Yeah. It's like, of course, that's what's going to happen. These people are celebrities, right? Right. <laughs> and, you know, uh, and some people might actually find the, the idea of having sex with a dead celebrity more titillating than a live one. Right. You know, <laughs> because when you have all these... You have all these people with all this money and all this time on their hands, you know, and it's already, you know, people who are artists, creatives tend to be more transgressive than than people who are not. So the realm of possibilities is expanded. Right. That that was the, the essentially the, the ethos I got from California was like that wonderful song by Guns N' Roses, uh, Welcome to the Jungle. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know. You can basically do whatever you want. Just don't take my stuff. And everybody's super laid back about it. Maybe not in Orange County, but, you know, it's just like, okay, man, whatever. <laughs> you know, and coming from the buttoned up Northeast, I, it was, oh, yeah. it was a, just totally shocking to me. But, you know, I'm a libertarian, so I don't care. Right. It was, you know, it's just like, wow, you know. And, and so I can't help but think that that experience led me to believe that this must be going on. So. Yeah, um, it, it, it's so no, funny because I'm sorry, let me interrupt, but it just sure. it just occurred to me, you know, like what you were saying, you went to Los Angeles and you realized, wow, this is probably going on. And I, it wasn't until I read the story that I was like, holy shit, that probably does happen. <laughs> yeah. You know, never underestimate the, the, pe the capacity of people to be depraved if money is no object. Right. Right. You know, a friend of mine told me years ago that he went to a casino and they had a special VIP entrance. And he went in the VIP entrance and went to this private club within the casino that I, I guess that you either had to be, you know, a super high roller to get into or be invited. And, and if I remember correctly, he said, and I, I assume he was telling me the truth. Let's put it this way. I'm willing to believe it. Yeah. But, you know, you could get drugs, prostitutes, all kinds of crazy stuff on the menu because it's like, you know. These people are spending a lot of money. Why can't they have what they want, right? Yeah, exactly. It reminds me of um, Hostel. Yes, exactly. And there's a Hostel sequel, I think, where a bunch of deviants are like, they're spinning a wheel, the wheel of torture. That's right. And whatever, wherever the needle lands, that's what they're going to do. And they're like betting on which outcome. Right. <laughs> well, that was that was absolutely inspired. Yeah. So, yeah. That's Because it, eventually your depravity is so dulling that... You know, you have to find newer and better ways to get your kink on. Yeah, exactly. One of the two of the books I wrote, three of the books, I wrote a thesis in college uh, um, in for my English major. And I focused on The Great Gatsby by 
F. Scott Fitzgerald, and then Bright Lights, Big City by Drew McInerney, and two books, including Lesson Zero by Brett Easton Ellis. And they're all about depravity. People with lots of money doing terrible things because they can't, because the money insulates them sufficiently from the real world that they have to face they have to face the ultimate reality, which is who am I? Where am I going? Is there meaning in the world? And they can't deal with that question because they don't know. So they get fucked up. Yeah. You know, and it, it's a problem you see it in lots of places. So and one of the advantages to the state of nature is that you're spending so much time surviving that most of these problems never occur to you. Yeah, that's and, true. You know, it's rich societies that end up becoming decadent because the vicissitudes of life, they're insulated from that. Yeah. And, you know, so it's, you know, what do I do with myself, right? And it, it's, that's another thing. You know, remember the affluenza defense a few years ago? Oh, yeah. Uh, in Texas? I mean, the idea that somebody's humanity could be totally dissipated by getting everything they want. Right. I actually think that's possible, <laughs> you know, because it's, it's, it's as depraved to... It, it's 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 the same form of child abuse, or it's it's the same degree and severity of child abuse in a different way. You're not beating your child or emotionally, you know, condescending to them. You're just giving them whatever they want. Yeah, yeah. Be bliss, right? So that's the last thing you should do to someone. Right. I mean, that's a whole other topic, but I've often said that about with, you know, because I have kids that are in their teens and early 20s, and my, my wife has kids, several kids and around the same age, and it's this generation does not know from suffering because all those prior generations have always said, well, we want to make it better for the next generation. Well, they did and we've arrived and now these kids have it so good that, you know, they can barely help themselves because they don't know from suffering. They don't know, shut the lights off because it costs money or, you know, help around the house because you're part of the family. It's just, they're all focused inwards, you know, and especially with this on demand culture now, it's just getting worse. And they're absorbed in cyberspace. Yeah, yeah. And I remember when I was growing up, you would play with the kids in your neighborhood, and my parents were like, you know, just check in every once in a while. Yeah. If I wasn't around, they'd just yell my name, and I'd come. Yeah. And that's how it functioned. And I was basically, especially in the summers, I was free to do whatever I wanted during the day. Oh, yeah. And now it's like children are just, their their lives are managed, and, you know, at least at least upper middle class and rich kids, their lives are managed and, and programmed and everything is designed to get them into the right college. And, yeah. you know, it's like, it's like childhood is being erased, you know, and that's not good for children because it doesn't allow them to be children. Right. Um, it doesn't allow them the spontaneity of play. It doesn't allow them to get the self-confidence of being out in the real world and dealing with things on your own. Right. Exactly. So, and that's if you if you can't do that, then you know, you're not in a healthy place. And yeah, I understand the the instinct behind it, but at some point you just have to. You can't perfectly protect your children and not destroy them, right? Right. So that's essentially what what we're doing. You know, we're you know we're we're what is it that old song, "Cruel to Be Kind"? Yeah. <laughs> you don't even have to be cruel. You should just let your children be autonomous. You know, after a certain age. Oh, yeah. Doing that is now regarded as child abuse or neglect. You know, it's insane. Right. So just getting back to the novel here, I wanted to ask you, too. We're not really asking. Well, actually, I do want to ask you. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, all the stories are in first-person narration. and Except except for the, the cheerleader story 
That's right. Yeah, I was going to mention that. But the the first person ones remind me, be, because you're reading the narrator, you're kind of identifying with that. I'm sorry, not the cheerleader story, but the, the football player story. The football player, player one, yeah. Yeah. And I knew what you meant. <laughs> There's a cheerleader in it, but it's not about cheerleading. Right. Um, but because it's first person, you kind of the tendency is to identify with with the narrator, even though of course it goes off in directions that maybe most readers wouldn't. But have you seen the movie Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer with Michael Rooker? I saw part of it a long time ago. I haven't revisited it. Okay. Now the, it came I'm, out I, in, I think eighty six or so. Yes, I saw that when it came out, and it was one of those movies that um, I don't want to go too far into the movie itself, but basically it caused the NC seventeen rating because the the ratings board gave it an X rating not for any gore or violence because it didn't have anything more than the first Friday the 13th movie but it was for mood and they just thought the mood was so harsh that it deserved an X rating and of course back then X meant porn and you couldn't advertise the movie in certain places so that ended up getting the ball rolling for NC-17 anyways, there's a scene in that movie where Henry, the main character who's loosely based on Henry Lee Lucas the serial killer and his buddy Otis invade this couple's house, take their video camera, and the whole scene of the horrible things they do to this couple are seen through the video camera. So as an audience member, you're participating in what's going on, unintentionally, of course, but that's that's the emotion that it evokes. And I kind of got that with some of these stories, too, is like I'm a participant in the story. I'm not just reading about a dude that did X, Y, and Z and these bad things happen. I'm I'm that dude. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, I, I never thought of that, and I wasn't consciously intending. Yeah. So I mean, I, I, that's one aspect I liked about the book too. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I uh, I had a neighbor pay me a, a great compliment the other day. He he'd been reading the book, and he said that you know suddenly I'm wondering if you might actually do these things. He, <laughs> you know, he read the OCD story and. You know, I was like, you're not, you know, it was like, he said, obviously, I don't think you're going to go on a killing spree in the neighborhood. You know, the fact that that would raise those questions in his head that is a great compliment. That's awesome. Because I'm doing, I'm doing my job. Yeah. Right? Oh, so, yeah. I'm told that the, that the actress who plays, who's the fascist dictator of Hogwarts in episode, what is it, episode six? Oh, um, it was uh, Imelda Staunton played her. I can't think of the character's name. Yeah. Apparently, in real life, the actress is just a lovely person. But, yeah. You know, she's just really good at playing this horrible, horrible person. You talk about wanting to kill a character. It's like, holy crap. Right. You know? <laughs> and, and what's really funny is that, you know, I was thinking, I was, I was saying to somebody the other day, it's like, you know, you'd like to see, because I think that part of that movie, part of that, that chapter of the story involves the spiders that, that Hagrid cultivated and which tried to eat Harry and Ron. Right. And you're thinking that, you know, this Dolores Umbridge, I think was Dor- right. Yeah. Character. You'd think that you'd want to see the spiders take care of her, but instead the centaurs did it. And if you think about it, the centaurs are not killing her. Right. Yeah. They, you know, they made her their concubine. Right. Yeah. And that's even more horrifying than just being eaten by the spiders. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's interesting because, you know, you know, that, you know, for someone to think of that and to make that the fate of a character is pretty dark, especially in children's literature, supposedly children's literature. Right, right. I, I think that J.K. Rowling, in many ways, is a lot like the, is, is a successor to Roald Dahl, 
writer of yeah. many children's books, and most famously, if I'm not mistaken, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Yes, yeah. Which is a horror movie. It really is. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, it, it's designed for children, but, you know, you could write a description, a log line, a one-line description of that movie. It's like, um, children invited to visit the candy factory um, by its eccentric owner meet horrible fates within. Right. You know, that's a horror movie right there. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I don't care if it's a musical. Right. Oh, it, you know? it's so and dark. The Oompa Loompas? Right. Really? <laughs> That's so funny. And have you ever considered turning the, um, you know, uh, Disgusting Supermarket into a film or like an anthology film or a TV series or a streaming se- series? Not yet. But then again, it just came out. So no, that's true. I, I am working on a screenplay version of my graphic novel, Stay Alive, where I've worked on it. And now I'm going to see what, where it goes. Oh, good. I was going to ask you about that next. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, Stay Alive is a graphic novel. I co-plotted it and wrote the script, uh, and it was released by my publisher, Marcosia. And I, I just have to say, I'm so grateful to Harry Marcos and Marcosia for taking a chance on work, because it's obviously, you know, edgy, and I, I, you know, I, I can't think of enough. And it's about this out-of-work actress who's desperate to do something to revive her career. And so what she does is... She ends up irritating a group of serial killers that run a website that allow people to vote for anyone they want to see murdered and then murder the person who gets the most votes. <laughs> she gets voted to the top of their list and then parlays her calamity into a reality TV show called Stay Alive. And in it, she tries to avoid being murdered by the people. It's called the Consortium of Killers. It's called You Kill. And they run a web, the, they allow people to vote for different potential victims on their website, youkill.com. One of the other things they do to enliven the proceedings is they release this stalker, the, the main character Jane Morgan had, who murdered two people on her last movies, two of her co-stars. And so the thing is just a, a grotesque bloodbath in which Jane is constantly in peril. People are dying all around her. And she's the biggest star in the world at the same time. Everybody's watching the show. And... You know, it, it's it occurred to me that, you know, social media mobs are just like any other mob, maybe not as imminently dangerous, but they're still dangerous. Yeah. And I was thinking, what if you weaponize that in a way that, you know, actually started killing people with it? You know, the purpose of it was to kill people. And I was thinking, how do you, you know, and then one of the questions I like to ask myself if I'm trying to come up with an idea for a horror story is, what do you do? Take something that's horrible, depraved, antisocial. Right. Yeah. Bad behavior. How do you monetize that? Right. So better to exploit a terrible cultural trend than to make money off of it by making a TV show about it. Right. Right. So imagine if somebody decided to make a TV show out of all those terrible YouTube challenges that kids end, that end up killing kids every year. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know. And they, they started saying, you know, well, send us your video from your YouTube challenge and you too might be featured. Like it's America's funniest home videos, but it's like, you know, it's a catalog of inadvertent suicides. Right. So, you know, so I was thinking, you know, this, this could be fun. And I tried to have as much fun with it as possible. I tried to make it basically like a 70s grind exploitation type movie, nice. grindhouse exploitation. Yeah. 
And so, you know, and I think I succeeded, you know, my partners, my, my co-author Fraser Bryce, writing as Mackie Wildwood and our artist, Stephen Baskerville, I, you know, it's it just his art. I, I mean, my God, it's self-evidently brilliant. So, and I, I, I'd like to think that, that this and, and the other book are sort of love letters to EC Comics in many ways, because nice. I try to merge extremely terrible things with really funny stuff. Yeah. And to make the whole thing palatable, ultimately, like you're immersed in terrible things, but when you're done, you don't feel like you have to take a shower. Right, right. So. <laughs> well, that's awesome. That's awesome. Do you have anything else in the works at the moment? I'm actually working on a trio of novellas that I hope to finish later this year. And after that, I'm thinking about a science fiction project, but that's only in its beginning stages. Excellent. So more more outright science fiction than horror science fiction, which is basically what I've done before. Right, right. Yeah. Well, James, it's so awesome. I was so glad you came on the show. Um, can you tell our listeners where they can find you online and your and your novel? Oh yeah, you can buy the the books on Amazon or at Barnes and Noble. They're also because my publisher is British. They're available in different bookstores throughout the United Kingdom and I assume in Europe. Well, they're available through Amazon in Europe and all over, wherever Amazon, it's legal for them to, to list it. <laughs> I assume it's listed. And my, uh, you can go to my Goodreads page, Jim Harberson on Goodreads. It's just Jim and my last name. And I also have a Twitter feed. I think it's at Novel Stay. And I have an Instagram feed, Stay Alive GN. Um, actually, I can look them up. Just give me a moment. Cool. And we'll put all uh, the, the links in the show okay. notes. Yeah. And I may have already sent them to you. I'm just not sure. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, they can they can follow news about the and press about them at the Twitter feed and also on the Instagram feed. Excellent. And I'm you know, I'm I'm just extraordinarily grateful, like I said, to my publisher, to my cohorts and to my fans. You know, the fact that people like what they're reading and that I can reach them is a wonderful thing. It can never be underrated. Oh, yeah. You know, because I, the world is a cold and alienating place often. And if you can find kindred spirits, then there's nothing more valuable than that. Absolutely. It, it, call it maybe a, call it maybe a, 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 in my case, kind of a dark, a dark version of the Angel Clarence's injunction at the end of. It's a beautiful life. No man is a failure who has friends. Right. So <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. I hope you come back to promote your next book. Definitely. And Jim, you're more than invited to join us on, if you want to come back on and just discuss a horror movie or two with us, that would be awesome. Oh, yeah. That would be outstanding. Cool. Yeah. I, I, I'm trying to think. I just rewatched Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. Oh, yeah. It was a made-for-TV movie that came out in, I think, 1979, 79, yeah. 78, in there. And it is it is a magnificent horror film, made-for-TV, yeah. but still scary, 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 and well-acted. And what's his name that was in it? Because he also played Durant in Darkman. And... Yeah, Larry something or other. Larry, yeah, you're right. Larry Clark, no, that's the, the director. Yeah, I mean, it was just, it was just, 
a genuinely scary movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, awesome. All right, man. Well, thanks so much, and, and we'll talk soon, and, and good luck on your next endeavor. Okay. That, I, I greatly appreciate the opportunity to talk about this stuff. I, I, I can't thank you enough. Well, folks, as always, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Then Is Now podcast and enjoyed learning about a horror author that you may not have heard of. Please check out James Harbison's books, A Disgusting Supermarket of Death, and Stay Alive, and support up-and-coming authors as best you can. Remember, you can send your feedback to thenisnow42 at gmail.com, and don't forget to join in our conversation at our Facebook Then Is Now podcast group. Then is Now Podcast is a proud member of the Dorkening Podcast Network, so please be sure to check out the other great shows there at thedorkening.com. You can also visit our website at havenpodcasts.com, where you'll find our sister show, The East Meets the West, in which we discuss Shaw Brothers films and spaghetti western movies. And Then is Now is on YouTube, so please visit youtube.com slash user slash UncleDeath1 to get the latest videos as well as other fun videos. Please subscribe to our YouTube page and also share the video versions of our podcast with your friends and get them to subscribe as well. Don't forget to go wherever you download your podcast from, and if you like this episode, please leave us a great review so more listeners can find us. You can find us on all the podcasting apps, especially the big three, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Class dismissed. Now podcast is intended for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. Sounds, music, and clips played during this podcast are the property of their copyright holders. All original content is copyright Jupiter Media. For more shows like the one you just heard, check out the Dorkening Podcast Network at thedorkening.com.